Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. I'm your host, Ben Carson, and I'll tell you, we have a, a very interesting conversation today with Valerie Huber. Now, she is the founder and president of the Institute for Women's Health, an organization that promotes the highest attainable health and well-being for women throughout every stage of life. Uh, she served as the U.S. Special Representative for Global Women's Health at the Department of Health and Human Services under the Trump administration and worked in other capacities there, focusing on women's and adolescent health issues. And she was also integral to the creation and adoption of the Geneva Consensus Declaration, which we will discuss a little bit more. So, uh, first of all, welcome, Valerie. Thank you so much for joining us today and for the incredible job you've been doing in many capacities. Thank you for having me. The first thing I want to really ask you about is the Geneva Consensus Declaration. Uh, what is it and, and what's the history of it? What's really interesting, was interesting to me when I was special representative, was that there has have been coalitions for decades, coalitions of, of organizations, coalitions of countries um, that are seeking to demolish traditional values and protection of life and the defense of the family. Um, but there has never been a coalition of nations that are like-minded on these issues. So the Geneva Consensus Declaration came about after we first tried to negotiate with what I call the Global North, countries that provide foreign assistance to mostly the Global South. And I proposed that together we could actually address and and completely prevent many of the the health issues for women and girls around the world if we would work together and put take ideology off the table. Incredibly, not a single country that I talked to would agree to take ideology out of women's health. And so mm -hmm. that's where the Geneva Consensus Declaration came in. Well, how many if, countries were involved yeah. in that? So in 2020, when it was first signed, there were 32 countries representing every region of the world since then despite the fact that President Biden uh, removed the U.S. on day eight of his administration. Yeah, I saw that. We've been, able, we've been able to see four more countries join 
as a result. And there is a momentum around the 36 countries that are now members. And after Biden pulled us out, uh, no other countries jumped out, did they? No, we were able to add four more countries. <laughs> well, well, what <laughs> reason, what reason yeah. did the Biden administration give for pulling out? Well, I was, as many of us in the administration, was working until we lost the ability to work on Inauguration Day. I went back in as a private citizen and looked around at the different policies that we had universally been able to to make across government. And the only policy I could find removed before the sunset on Inauguration Day was all existence of the Geneva Consensus Declaration. That told me that even though most Americans weren't aware of it, the Biden administration cared enough that that would be something that even on Inauguration Day, they expunged from, mm. from a government website. The reason that it's so important is because of four pillars that are surrounding it. And the first is, it doesn't matter where countries are currently on promoting health for women and girls, they committed to make improvements. The second is that they also agreed that there is no international right to abortion. Rather, it's up to the countries to decide. Third, the family is foundational to every healthy society. And fourth, we need to respect the sovereign right of countries to be able to defend those aforementioned three priorities. You know, I got to thinking because there have been a number of, of quiet and public statements by our administration, President Biden, but also other countries and, and groups like the European Union opposing the GCD. And I believe it's because never before have there been 36 countries from every region of the world that say abortion is not a human right. Mm-hmm. And and really, isn't that that the thing that attracted the Biden administration? They believe that it is a, a right, and that it should be uh, universally available and paid for. And I think that's that's why the undue attention from them. But to me, it seems like there there's a lot of debate about debate in our country, but. Does it occupy the same space in other countries on the international level? That is such a good question. Something that I've learned as I've been working with different countries is that there is there is a difference in the way they look at, at issues. I'll just call them the social issues. Here in the United States, there are many of us who care about that, but the overall sentiment kind of of the discussion around politics is that those social issues are kind of off to the side and there are really important issues that we need to be concerned about. In countries that value life and the family, this is not a side issue. This is core to who they are as a nation. It's core to their cultural and, and, and religious understanding. It's in many of their constitutions. And so when when countries or foundations or outside actors pressure them to change their laws in this regard, not only is it an affront to them and and their sovereignty, but it it is also an affront because it is is an attack on their core values of their Mm -hmm. country. Well, the General Assembly has acted in one way and the 
the World Health Organization, Human Rights Commission, in another way, it seems like there's some tension there. Does that look like something that might be resolved anytime soon <laughs> with some consensus? <laughs> well, your laugh answers that question right there. If you're talking about the General Assembly as not the United Nations entity that convenes the member states, but the but you're talking about the member states themselves, there isn't consensus about th- these issues. However, there's something nefarious that happens. Countries work very hard to to reach consensus, and because of that, there are there are statements made, there are amendments made, there are agreements that a country will will sign on as a consensus country, but only under certain circumstances. Well, after that resolution is passed and the consensus has been reached by the the hundred and ninety some countries, then UN agencies. Uh, take that resolution, uh, that policy, and then devise programs, funding opportunities for countries, foundations do the same, countries do the same, and suddenly something that was agreed by consensus becomes a cudgel to be used against countries rather than uh, to be implemented in a way that it was intended. Well, you know, the uh, UN officials have been working very hard, not only to to try to make abortion a right, but to squash the rights of people who have conscientious objection to doing uh, abortions. And what is our best defense against individuals like that? Because they bring on very prominent individuals, big names, and try to make it seem like anybody who is against this is just some kind of Neanderthal from another age. (laughs) Well, you know, what you just said, I have heard ambassadors and people in other countries say, and that's another reason this is such an affront, because somehow there is a narrative that the only way you can be considered a developed nation is if you um, agree to radical ideologies, if you throw away um, the, the, the traditions and values that your country was built upon. And there is a very sad response that, that we see happen, or a result, I mean, that we see happen as, as, as a result of that. Number one, those gains that could be made, let's say, around women's health and strengthening the family, two things that we work on uh, a lot, um, they stall. And it's because countries see, and and I've heard leaders tell me this in other countries, organizations, countries will come to us and say, we want to help um, alleviate whatever the the health issue is or the educational issue is. And then after the agreement comes, then they find that it was all a ruse and nothing positive happens in that regard. But then they are in country and are are working for ideological issues that do nothing to promote health and, and, and family. The other thing is, while I think that the GCD, the Geneva Consensus Declaration, is a huge and important entity that needs to grow, I would like to see it grow from 36 to 72 countries. There are many other like-minded countries 
and they're under tremendous pressure, those who are members to leave and those who aren't members to join. So the, the fact that we've seen, despite that pressure, four more countries join um, is very encouraging to me, but that's the beginning, not the end. So our institute created uh, a model after talking to political leaders around the world we wanted to know what kind of vulnerabilities they had to the values that I think we both hold dear and and other countries do as well. And it was interesting that I found that it didn't matter what region of the world, what the socioeconomic, what the geopolitical realities were, if they were like-minded on, on these issues uh, that brought them together under the GCD, they had the same vulnerabilities, whether it was by other countries, whether it was by UN agencies, whether it was by foundations or funded NGOs. There were four things, and they matched exactly what the, the Geneva Consensus Declaration stated. Yes. So, we, so we created Proteco to be able to work very closely with governments to then effectuate in-country what they agreed in the coalition. And I really believe that those two things linked could be an effective way for, for these values to be defended because then they have tools that are, are country-specific Mm-hmm. that also bring information that they may not know, but that we can help share because we see patterns around the world. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to get paid to do something. It's another thing to have it be a missional drive to defend that no amount of money can win over. I'm so glad to have... Uh fighters like yourself and others who are willing to stand up for values and principles. We're going to have to take a short break. Stay with us. We'll be back in one minute with Valerie Huber. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back. We're joined by Valerie Huber, president and founder of the Institute for Women's Health. Uh, Valerie, family is the other major tenet of the declaration. Uh, Why was strengthening the family so important to include in the Geneva Consensus Declaration? Well, I think at, at its core, the Geneva Consensus Declaration was created to remove anything standing in the way of health and thriving for women and girls. But without a strong family, both as a family unit, but also as a, as a strong priority for countries to strengthen and encourage strong families, you're not going to see 
health and thriving for women and girls to take place. And this isn't just Valerie Huber saying that. There is so much research out there that I'm sure you're very familiar with, Dr. Carson, about the importance of strong, resilient families and then the outcomes that we see as a result of every family member, not just women and girls, but of boys and men. And, you know, when the, when there is a committed marriage that grows a committed family, it's just off the charts, the differences that, that we see. When we're talking about in the developing world, also talking to leaders, they tell me over and over again that for them, it doesn't matter if they have precious gems uh, in, as, as one of the resources in their country, their greatest natural resource is their family. Well, you know, I, I, I wonder sometimes, is this really the result of the growing influence of Marxism all over the place? Because, uh, you know, the Marxists are not family friendly at all or faith friendly. You know, they want to move those things out of the way so that the governing structure can have complete control. They even say things like children don't belong to you, they belong to the government. And, uh, you know, I, I see some of this as an outgrowth of, of that Marxism. But uh, another thing that you talk about is optimal women's health. And I think you're focusing on, you know, not just physical, but mental, social, spiritual. What actually do you mean by this? Yeah, so we looked at the public health research around optimal health. And I asked the question a while ago, why, why aren't we having a focus on optimal health as more of a priority here in the United States? And then when we started talking to, to other countries and put together ProTACO, we realized that there wasn't a women's health framework that ministries of health could adopt that would be consistent with the, the value of valuing every life regardless of how young or how old. But then we also thought it's really important that we are science-based and research-based. And as we began putting together this women's health framework, we also assembled an international health council with experts from around the world. And we began hearing the importance of that holistic health, which is mental and uh, intellectual and social and spiritual health. And how you it, you can have physical health and still not be healthy you you know that and 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 i think we only need to look at um the devastation on so many individuals that covid and not having any interaction with the outside world for many many months and in some cases many years really had an impact on on mental health and and people were, were dying having not been uh, physically ill prior to that, that point. So as we put together this women's health framework, we thought we need to create a framework that is unlike any other framework that ministries of health, or even in our country, we hope that states will also look at, the, at this. We're rolling it out in, in uh, January officially. We've been, we've been working with a country as a prototype of it, but 
we want to look at health that can have an impact for any person, regardless where they live, regardless of their current situation, and that, that this is a health that can be improved by those outside of the traditional healthcare uh, spectrum, but faith leaders, those in community, empowering parents, and, and, and that's why we've also created Parent-Child Communication Guide. Anything that can improve what is optimally necessary for real long-term health um, is, is a part of optimal health and that framework. It's so important. I was talking to a psychiatrist a few days ago, and he was talking about the explosion of uh, patients with anxiety and depression. And, uh, you know, if you've got severe issues that way, <laughs> you know, the rest of it doesn't matter that much. And then the other thing that they, they often seem to want to ignore is spiritual health. What do you mean when you talk about spiritual health? Yeah. I think, you know, not that many years ago, uh, when we thought of health, we only thought of physical health. And then not long ago, mental health kind of came in as another concern. But there are thousands of studies showing the importance of spiritual health to not only negate certain physical ailments, but the sense of purpose and the sense of community. And so when we're talking about spiritual health, we are talking about um, mostly um, a, a strong commitment and affinity to the religions of one's choice and then not just saying, yeah, this is the church or the synagogue or the mosque I'm going to join, but there's nothing that connects with the heart and, and real faith. This has to be authentic faith. And uh, when you see that, it is just amazing. I, I did a, a, a speech in a, in a foreign country about the connection of, of physical health and spiritual health. And it was only after doing the research for that, I saw how robust the, the research really is connecting those two. And my question is, number one, why isn't it talked about very much? And number two, this is a way that faith leaders can see a broad um, importance of what they are doing and to be also involved in in their community and among those who um, worship together in ways they may not even realize that they have positive influence. Mm -hmm. The attack on faith seems to be something that uh, is not only in this country, it seems to be uh, a global phenomenon now. And I think that perhaps goes hand in hand with the spreading of Marxist slash communist ideologies, which cannot have a God because they want to be God. <laughs> so needless to say, anything that promotes faith is going to be something that's going to be under attack by them. But what's really encouraging is you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was at Auburn University uh, in Alabama and uh, hearing about the incredible uh, event that took place there. It started out with just little prayer groups 
and ended up with 6,000 students, 200 of which were baptized that night spontaneously. That's amazing. And then you remember the things that happened earlier in the year at Asbury College in Kentucky. Could it be that people are telling us that it's time for a revival? (laughs) I just wonder, you know, there are people who say faith is dead. And, you know, personally, I'm a committed Christian. And we see troubling things here in the United States even. And I don't, disagree, I don't disagree that the the cultural Marxism could have a place, but we also see cycles of of revival uh, in our country and in other countries, and it sure is time. <laughs> yeah, we've had four revivals in the history of our country, usually around the time of uh, war or pestilence. Now we got both going, so I think we got a really good reason for a revival at this stage of the game. Uh, We're going to take another uh, quick break, and we'll be back in one minute with our fascinating guest, Valerie Huber. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. with common sense. You know, I always talk about the fact that uh, common sense isn't common anymore, but uh, we've heard a lot of common sense from our our guests today. And, uh, you know, President Trump was very much in favor of the kind of thing that you're doing, even though the media was very critical. President Biden, as you said, within days of his inauguration was ready to get rid of the U.S. as a signatory for the declaration. What's the status of the declaration today? Well, we just had the third commemoration of the signing of the Geneva Consensus Declaration here in Washington, D.C. It was in the U.S. Capitol. We had members of the House and the Senate be co-hosts. We had most of the regional lead countries also co-chair it. And we also have Hungary as the secretariat for the Geneva Consensus Declaration. And of course, our institute is working alongside all of these entities. But I have to tell you, Dr. Carson, that I saw this year at the commemoration where there were more than 40 countries assembled and other influencers in the room, I saw a camaraderie that I hadn't seen in the in the previous two, where where representatives from very different regions that ordinarily would not have a reason to be in the same room, we're getting photos together. We're talking about best practices. We're congratulating one country on what they have um, achieved in this space. That is what a coalition should look like. 
And What's I, next? yeah, so next is 2024. So first of all, in our country, uh, we're going to have a decision and as all Americans, and I think that decision is also going to predict whether or not the United States rejoins the Geneva Consensus Declaration. President mm-hmm. Biden has already communicated publicly his animus. We have been in contact with many of the other campaigns. And I know that President Trump has said on day one he would rejoin. And others have, have spoken very favorably as as well. So we're going to know about the U.S. very soon. In terms of countries, I also think 2024 is a watershed year uh, because countries have been under such attack, especially accelerated over the last three years, Mm -hmm. that many have told me we've realized that we have to stand up, that we cannot just say yes to things that are antithetical to our values. Right. And and I've seen that coming forward and it needs to take place. But it, you know, there are countries that will stand up and have stood up for their values for years and years and years. But I tell them, that's great. But isn't it also great that no longer do you have to stand alone? Amen. Amen. Well, how can people find out more about the uh, Institute for Women's Health and, and get involved? What kind of help do you need? <laughs> Well, we want to, we right now have more than 15 countries, and these are governments that are considering scaling Protego in their country for health, life, family, and many of these are aid-dependent countries, and we're not getting any funding from the federal government, but we want to be able to meet that need. We also have many countries who are learning more about what it means to join the Geneva Consensus Declaration. And so perhaps some of your listeners have really good contacts in countries mm. that they know are conservative. So there are, there are really three things. And I think that if we can go back to the, the faith aspect, pray for the work of the Institute for Women's Health and for the building of this coalition, because there's never been anything like this in the past. And it needs to grow tremendously uh, in 24. Go to our website, theiwh.org, and you'll you'll see what we do. Um, we've talked about some things that are not on our website, but we look forward to partnering with like-minded individuals and organizations that are in countries. We look forward to partnering with like-minded individuals and organizations that are here in the U.S., and don't like the fact that their taxpayer dollars are exporting ideology rather than what we think should be used for tax dollars for for promoting health or promoting democracy. It shouldn't be ideology. Well, I'm so thrilled to see someone like you who's very committed to this, and that commitment will make a difference. And I I hope a lot of the listeners will indeed uh, look up what you're doing and get involved because ultimately it involves all of us. It's not just about women's health, it's about the health of the entire society. And that's within our own hands to do something about rather than just to be bystanders and to complain. 
and you provide a mechanism whereby people can get involved and don't have to just sit around and complain. So we appreciate it. Please keep up the good work. God bless. Thank you so much. You're right. We can all be part of that solution. If you haven't read the declaration that we've been talking about during this program, it would be a good thing to do. It'd be a good thing to learn more about the United Nations and what their agenda is. What are they trying to drive us to do? Because unless you know what they're doing, you won't be able to provide a proper response to it. It's up to all of us to make ourselves as informed as we can possibly be, and then to work in our spheres of influence to make sure that we maintain liberty and justice for all with one nation under God. And remember the cornerstone principles, faith, liberty, community, and life. We'll see you next week.